Hello, you're about to hear Good Morning Seminole, our monthly signature event. I know that he needs no introduction, but we are so blessed in this community to have Sheriff Dennis Lima as our sheriff. So please join me in welcoming Sheriff Lima. Well, uh, good morning, Seminole. That's what you always have to start with. Good morning, Seminole. It's it's an absolute honor uh, to be here with you this morning. As I look around, I, I see a lot of uniquely positioned people in our community. Is it okay if I come down off the stage? I'd like to, to move around a bit. Again, thank you for the opportunity to share with you over the next 30 minutes or so, something that is so incredibly important in our community, in our country, in our society, and in our families. And it's gonna be this unprecedented uh, opioid dependency and addiction and co-occurring mental health conditions that go along with it. But what I would like to do is lay this out in a different format. I'd like to to try to answer the question why for you. Why and what our strategy is moving forward, if that's that's, uh, okay with you. I think that in this country and society, we have always recognized struggles with substance dependencies, right? In the early days, looking around the room, I think that we can remember a time where People were were talking about Woodstock and talking about the use of marijuana and talking about LSD and angel dust and all of these things that, quite frankly, you don't hear about anymore, right? And then there was a short period of time where, where, you know, people started to sensationalize the use of cocaine. This came largely in South Florida with cocaine cowboys, movies like Scarface, and people said, you know what, we don't want to waste any cocaine at all. We're actually going to use base cocaine, which was normally garbage, and we're going to sell it as crack cocaine. And we saw that in the 80s and dependency and all of this growing over that time. And there was a short wave of things that we probably don't really recognize in this room, but we recognize it when we hear some of the names. These were largely raves and these other club drugs that came in, and this is when we heard about uh, flunitrazepam, rohypnol, or roofies, and everyone was afraid to leave their drinks unattended because it was the date rape drug. And we saw methylene methamphetamine, which was a drug often referred to as ecstasy or MDMA, and it was all of these things that were going on. And at the same time, we saw things coming in on our shelves legally in many convenience stores, and these were designer drugs. And they were named designer drugs because chemists would synthetically design the drug to stay one step ahead of what was illegal, meaning that once it became illegal on the DEA list of things that were illegal, they would just tweak the chemistry, put it back on the shelf, and actually sell it legally. This was the legal version of marijuana, heroin, LSD, anything that you want to buy. But the real crisis that has resulted in unprecedented death was brewing under our nose the entire time, and we really didn't recognize it. And this came when the uh, Sacklers with their company, uh, Purdue Frederick, and I underscore the company Purdue Frederick because Purdue Frederick is going to be different than Purdue Pharma, uh, largely dealt with cosmetic things that were over-the-counter products that you get in in local convenience stores, uh, earwax removal and these other things. Uh, When Richard Sackler was running the company, uh, they had the market cornered on a drug called MS Cotton. It was a morphine that provided pain relief for largely four hours and largely cancer patients, meaning that when when you were suffering, you could take it, take it, it would work for four hours, you'd wake up in the middle of the night and have to take another pill, 
morphine-based continuous release form formula, but the continuous re release was largely uh, four hours. Uh, uh, Eileen Sackler, the daughter of Richard Sackler, said, you know what, we can use oxycodone to actually do the same thing. We can call it oxycotton, and we can put it out there. It's a synthetic. We can put it in a slow-release capsule formula, and we can give people pain relief, not every four hours, but enough time for them to sleep and cover throughout the night. Everyone says this sounds wonderful, great idea, wonderful plan. How do we get this approved? Because sometimes it's a lengthy process to get this process approved. Well, we will court the Food and Drug Administration, particularly a guy called Dr. Curtis Wright. Dr. Curtis Wright was in charge of approving new drugs, and they, they built the relationship with him, wore him down over the time with the flamboyant nature of, of the Sacklers, and ultimately, he approved a drug for the first time in U.S. history that read almost like an advertisement for the drug. And the key point there was when it got passed, uh, the messaging and the branding was, with proper use of Oxycontin, the patient is less than 1% likely to become addicted and dependent on the drug. And almost immediately, policing professionals, emergency uh, healthcare professionals, people that worked in the recovery space, knew that that simply was not true. But because of the power and the influence, they did all that they could do to suppress this. The largest area that was affected was in the Appalachia area uh, of the country, where men and women who worked knew what a hard day's work was. They worked with their hands and their back, and largely they were uninsured and underinsured. And if they were not working, they were not putting food on the table. So you can see the attraction when a patient like that walks into the doctor, and the doctor says, Dennis, you're going to need serious back surgery. There is no way around this. You have a condition that will not correct itself. You need surgery. However, the doctors tell me, the, the, the New England Medicine Journal tell me that there's a medicine I can give you that will relieve your pain until I can get you in and have that surgery. And I'm going to issue you a 40 milligram Oxycontin. And I'm going to let you fill that script as many times until you can get in to get this uh, surgery scheduled. They get out there, they take the drug, and they say, you know what, I think I can work. I think I can put off this surgery, and then ultimately one pill becomes two, two becomes three, three becomes four, and they don't disclose that the human body builds up a tolerance to sustained and prolonged use of medicine, right? It doesn't have the same effect the first time you take it as it does the hundredth time you take it. But the idea is more milligrams, more pills, the more you sell, the better off we are as a company. This is the narrative that we're hearing now. But in the early stages of this, many states got aware of the harms and the hazards, and many states created what was called a prescription pill monitoring system. Uh, one of the states that was last to create a prescription pill monitoring system was the state of Florida, where we were home to 950 pill mills across the state of Florida, 17 here in Seminole County, and responsible for 97% of the pharmaceutical grade prescription pills on the street in this country, 97%. What that looked like is people would get in their cars from every contigu contiguous state to, to the state of Florida and some well beyond, drive down what they referred to as the opioid express, doctor shop, 
walk into any one of the pain management clinics, fill a script, pay cash, and at the time, you could do all of that under one roof. You could no longer do that any longer. And they would take their pills, they would go back to their home area and sell each pill for a ba basically a dollar a milligram. An 80 milligram Oxycontin pill was selling on the street in this country for about $100 a pill. So you can imagine if you went to the dentist and you had an abscess tooth and you got a penicillin pill and you got something for the pain and that's something for the pain that was covered by the insurance company happened to be an Oxycontin pill and you filled it and you took a couple of pills and put it in your medicine cabinet. These now were things of value in your medicine cabinets. Maybe not so much to you, but to other people who were pretending to purchase your home. Uh, they were shopping for an apartment uh, simply to get inside the medicine cabinet to see if they could either get their hands on these pills to either get high or to sell them on the streets or in the schools or wherever else it's at. At the time, one block away from the sheriff's office, there was a pain management clinic that opened their door within two days. There was a line around the building with an armed security guard on the outside of the building and folks were standing in line they often were referred to as laymen's, as zombies, because they were just standing there, walking in, seeing a doctor, and I use that term loosely, on the average of two minutes, getting their pills, getting them filled, and coming right back out. In Seminole County, we closed down two pharmacies because they overprescribed in the millions of pills. One was the pharmacy that was located on the corner of 1792 and Lake Mary Boulevard. They lost their right to deal in scheduled narcotics at that location, and we also closed another location down in Oviedo. So at the time, the, the U.S. government finds out there's corruption here, there's a lot going on, and we're going to charge top executives in the, in the Purdue company with criminal neglect for not alerting the public on what was going on. So they found the top three executives, highest they can go, they weren't Sacklers, uh, but the highest they can go where they felt like there was enough evidence to prove a case against them, right? Typically, the executives in an organization are not the ones sending emails and having communications and doing all of those things. So they found three top executives, and indeed, they were found guilty in federal criminal court, not civil court, federal criminal court for deceptive marketing practices, misleading the public, uh, uh, suppressing all of the hazards that were being relayed in constantly. And what's unique is when a pharmaceutical company is working, you can't do business with the government if you're found guilty in federal criminal court. So they let Purdue Pharma take the hit on, on the criminal allegations, you know, the, the grandparents' company that dealt with mostly cosmetic, over-the-counter type of medicines, and Purdue Pharma, another company that they had created, went on to fight another day, and then they doubled down. Now, let me pause and digress for a moment and talk about something that also had an effect on this. We became a pain-centric society. When, when the internet came on board, and people found out that, you know what, it didn't matter where you went, what you did, you were going to get graded on the services that you provided. So, if you dealt with pain management and you were a clinic that, that really was working in that space and somebody came in with pain and they left with pain, they went on Yelp and gave you a one-star review and said, don't bother going in this business. I walked in hurt and I left hurt. But we, as a society, should know 
a clue is when our bodies are telling us something, a little bit of pain is something that we deal with. The expectation to walk in with pain with a legitimate injury and walk out with zero pain is not a realistic expectation. It's fake. But because there is no uh, scientific method to judge one's pain, we come up with this plan that says, okay, you know what we're going to do? We're going to ask you to rate your level of pain on a scale from 1 to 10. And if you're not smart enough to know that 1 is less than 10, we're going to put smiley faces and frowns that correspond to numbers so you know what we're talking about, right? And arguably, pain is one of the most subjective things that we can ever talking about because it's based with pain tolerance, it's based upon pre-existing injuries. Like if I asked every one of you to come up here and shake my hand, and I squeezed firmly, and I asked you to go back to your table and rate the level of pain my handshake gave you on a scale from one to 10, we would indeed have different numbers in this room. And the medical community embraced this concept at the time that says, patient knows best. Who am I to say, if you tell me you're an eight, who am I to say that you're not an eight? So I'm going to treat you like an eight. And of course, at the time, hospice was building. Uh, uh, all of these, these compassionate care strategies were going on. So this is going on. Back to Purdue. So what they say is, you know what? We've been found guilty in a lawsuit. We need to clean our act up. You know what we'll do? We will put a disclaimer that says, if you crush the drug up, if you snort it in your nose, if you inject it in your arm, if you rest it underneath your tongue, this drug turns to nothing but pure heroin. Create an instructional manual to manipulate the drug and make it pure heroin. If you did not know how to do it, you could just follow the instructions that they gave you. <laughs> the only good thing was they put it in size 3.5 font. You know that booklet they give you when you fill a script, the one that you rip off, throw in the garbage, and ask the pharmacist, you have any questions of me? Nope, I think I'm okay. I'm gonna simply read whatever's on the side of the bottle. In many cases, I'm gonna have to get my glasses to even read what's on the side of the bottle. But if you think I'm going to read that book of medical jargon, you're absolutely out of your mind. So nobody read it, nobody read it. The largest pill mill in the country was down in Broward County, Florida, a place called American Pain. It was run by people who operated an adult entertainment establishment during the daytime. They asked the dancers to put on white lab coats, go across the street as they rented out a place off Oakland Park Boulevard. And in days, it became a, a destination where people traveled from across the country. At one time, when they were trying to legitimize this, they made so much money, they purchased a tractor trailer. Normal tractor, the trailer was portable MRIs. They would pull it behind the establishment, they would, they would tell people, run people through there, scan their backs until you find something that looks like it could be painful, and then stop and give them the script. The people that were running through occupied homeless camps in South Florida. And what they would do is they would go in, they would gather everybody from the homeless camp, say, come with me, we're gonna run you through the MRI. The MRI is gonna give you the report. You're gonna walk into the clinic. You're gonna see a doctor for two minutes. You're gonna fill the script. Here's cash to get the pills. 
You're going to come out and give all your pills to me. I'm going to give you $100 a piece, and I'll be back in three days to do this all over again to make it look like it was legitimate. The problem is it created unprecedented dependency and addiction on an opioid. Now, most of us have never been addicted to opioids. Some of us are medical doctors, pharmacists, in the medical industry that are in this room. So let me, in layman terms, tell you what it feels like to be addicted to an opioid as described by a medical doctor to me. Dennis, if you ever want to feel what it feels like to be addicted to an opioid, have somebody hold you underwater for 45 seconds. Your fight for the surface air is the same fight that somebody has who's addicted to an opioid. They are no longer in search of euphoria or getting high. They have become what we call in layman's terms, dope sick. They feel and believe that if they don't get their next dose of this drug, they will die. Let me bring this home for you because I worked with VA Secretary Bob McDonald who happens to live here uh, in the Orlando area, who reformed the VA hospitals. The hospital group that was responsible for the largest amount of overprescribing of opioids at the time was the VA hospitals. Because military veterans came out with legitimate injuries that they needed to be treated, and when legitimate medical institutions believed and felt that it was safe to prescribe this drug, of course they did. Of course they did but they made it a part of their regiment to provide treatment and everything else. But once you become addicted, it is more difficult than what we've been raised to believe to just say no. Let me tell you what, just say no works incredibly well if you've never started. Just saying no once you've started is much more difficult. As adults, as a comparison, how many people do we know that are responsible, loving family members that have tried to beat the addiction of nicotine? They, they've had patches and gum, and, and next thing you know, they, you see them stopped, and they have the most horrific examples of what smoking can do on the television. In some cases, you have to turn your head away, and yet you see somebody still, still smoking. It's the addictive properties. Now, let me talk a little bit about science and biology uh, uh, as relayed as a disclaimer from a sheriff. There is a middle part of the brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is a spontaneous, they call it an alligator part of the brain that we have no control over. The amygdala is stimulated by certain things. And when that goes wrong, uh, we recognize it. An amygdala hijack is when that amygdala is stimulated by something it sends signals to the frontal cortex of the brain. This is where we make rational decisions and we judge other people with the frontal cortex of our brain. And when that process works, somebody will say something to me, it will stimulate my amygdala, it will send a signal to the frontal cortex of the brain and it'll tell me, stop, don't say that, she's your boss, you're gonna get yourself fired. <laughs> For some, there's an interruption in that process. The most recent example that I can give that interrupted that process is Will Smith. Will Smith was known to be a clean, 
uh, 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 an A-rated actor in wonderful movies at the Oscars, likely to win, likely to promote a great movie. And we witness an amygdala hijack occur in front of the world. We evaluate the amygdala hijack with the benefit of the frontal cortex of our brain, meaning that when we see this play out, we say, surely this is an act. They're comedians, they've got their friends, there's something going on here where they're just acting. Until he started using profanity. And then our frontal cortex of the brain says, well maybe it's still an act, but they've taken it now too far. We're trying to rationalize what we're seeing and he is absolutely losing it at the time. He's in an amygdala hijack. Sustained use of drugs affect the amygdala. This is why a woman who's raised in a loving family in a middle-class home who has a college degree locks her children in the closet, steals her family heirlooms and sells them for a penny on the dollar, goes unconscious in a bathroom with a dirty needle in her arm, not because she's making rational thoughts that we judge people who are on this course with, because the amygdala is in control and steering her life in direction. If that part of the brain is in control, they quite literally are not in their right frame of mind. The part that makes decisions is not doing that. Unfortunately, we judge family members and loved ones with the frontal cortex of the brain and we say, enough's enough. I've, I've, I've helped you, I've sent you to rehab, I've given you money and resources, I bought you a car, you keep disappointing me, you keep doing this. All of this is communication that's coming from the frontal cortex. But we're talking to somebody that has no control over that unless they're given access to medical-based treatment therapy combined with cognitive behavioral therapy. We'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. So we have an unprecedented crisis. You combine that with now there is no longer a problem in this country of overprescribing. No longer a problem. How much time have I been talking? No, no longer a problem in this country with overprescribing. What we have, I have 10 minutes left. Uh, <laughs> what we have in this country now is when, when the precursor chemicals in China, these labs were getting closed down, the chemists in China said, we're going to find a way to make our money. At first, they started to run rogue labs in China send the product over to the United States, and at the time it was still pharmaceutical grade. But what happened is precursor chemicals are now taken from China. The, the Mexican drug cartel, when I talk about the cartel, we're talking about two cartels, Sinaloa uh, a drug cartel and the Holisto New Generation cartel. It's the two cartels that are, that are doing this that are responsible for the drugs across the country. But their chemists are now using fentanyl to make what looks like Oxycontin. Fentanyl is 100 times more potent than morphine, 50 times more potent than heroin, or a microgram is a lethal dose. Microgram, the equivalent to eight grains of salt and not visible to the human eye, is a lethal dose. And every single day here in Seminole County and counties across this country, we're seeing people overdose or be poisoned. Just four hours ago, we, we revived somebody on 46 at the, at, at, the, um, at the Sunrail station who was not breathing, unconscious, brought him back to life with the use of naloxone. Um, naloxone, and Leah Shepard is here. She is the executive director 
a victorious voice, a voice uh, uh, of reason. The person who introduced me to the use of naloxone was David Siegel. After his loss of his daughter, Victoria, David and Jackie have been solid ambassadors, probably the strongest voice uh, in this country. Uh, again, six years ago, David introduced me to this, and this is on your table, but this is a, an opioid antagonist. What this does, it immediately reverses the effects of an opioid overdose. When somebody takes a drug, organic or synthetic, it attaches to a part of the brain called the mu receptor. The mu receptor is influenced by the drug to the point where they say, turn off. And literally, people take the drug and stop breathing immediately. If you have access to this, a drug, and you do today, and we have a whole box of it over here, and you squirt this in the nostrils of the person who is unconscious, completely harmless. Doesn't matter if they're pregnant, if they're taking other medicine, completely harmless. If I didn't want to waste the dose, I would squirt it in my nose right now. When you squirt this in somebody's nose, it attaches to the mu receptor in the brain on top of the opioid and gives somebody 90 minutes of life. If you get them hospitalized in 90 minutes, it is likely we're going to save them. If you don't, they'll go back into the overdose situation. In Seminole County alone, Seminole County alone, we deploy this more than 800 times a year. Sadly, there's about 150 deaths, either by overdose or fentanyl poisoning in Seminole County every single year. There's something that we can do about it. We'll hold court after this presentation. Myself, Leah, members of my team, uh, Nicole and Marissa are here to talk to you more if you have time on, on the corner. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about is this partnership with uh, Jeff and his team at Advent Health, Scott Tucker over here. They are clearly the best in the business when it comes to treating and they are a compassionate organization, a compassionate company that understands that this is not a situation of trying to make uh, uh, bad people good, but rather it is a situation of to try to make sick people well. And what they do is they do that. If you're suffering from substance use disorder, you also have the co-occurring mental health conditions that go along with that. And we face a mental health crisis now like we've never experienced in our lifetime. The most recent statistics show that one out of every four children have seriously contemplated suicide in the last two years. I want you to think about this for a moment, and I know I'm getting close to my finish time, but can you imagine just for a moment, I don't know about you, but, but you know, I'm, I'm the parent of kids, and I remember when I was like 15, and we grow up a lot between the age of 15 and 18, don't we? Let's think about it. At 15, we're dependent on somebody else. Like, we can't get to practice without somebody driving us to practice, right? We typically are not in our first serious relationship with somebody else at 15. We're, we're typically not on organized sports. We're on the varsity team. We're, th there's a lot of things that we're not doing at 15. But between 15, 16, and 17, we get exposed to a lot of firsts. We have our first serious relationship with somebody where we're buying things, right? And we have our first serious breakup <laughs> that occurs in front of everyone else that we get embarrassed about. We get on the team, 
because we're working on our athletics, and then we get off the team because we say or do something that we shouldn't have done, right? We, we get our license. We, we get a car. We sometimes get a part-time job. We're experiencing gradually in this three years the world to prepare us for that 18 mark where in many cases we're off on our own. At the university, in the military, in the workforce, can you imagine if you spent those formative years in front of a computer wearing a mask only around two or three other people? And the first time that you're experiencing this, you're experiencing it alone. Dr. Tucker, Jeff Villanueva, they've created this Hope and Healing Center directly across from the, from the sheriff's office main headquarters. The second phase of that is a 15,000 square foot facility on 436 where people come through, no questions asked, and given the navigators and the healthcare services that they deserve. Uninsured, underinsured, nobody is turned away. This is supported by a Republican-led legislative body in the tune of $1.2 million over the last three legislative sessions. It's supported by a Democratic Congressional Committee that I've presented to the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, supported with a $400,000 appropriation from Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy when she was in office. Offset by private funds, Walmart gave $750,000, no grant, no application. They showed up in my office, the COO, and said, here's a half a million dollars to support your program because what you guys are doing is doing something. It's not an idea, it's a strategy. And we will be back next year with another $250,000 gift. And at the same time, this county has championed legislative changes and we lead the country in charging drug dealers with first-degree murder with a 35 successful prosecutions for first-degree murder of the drug dealers with another 15 in the hopper uh, doing that. Our local lawmakers champion those bills for us. We created, again, six or seven legislative successes directly in this space. Our county commissioners, our city managers, our mayors all believe in this. Our members of our school board, I mean, everything that you could want to happen is happening in this space. And as a result, we have a 21% reduction in overdose fatalities and a 21% reduction in overdoses are poisonings. It is the good work that Advent Health is doing. It is the partnership in the community. And why did I go along and why is it so incredibly important for this audience to hear it? It's because these are not people living under the overpass. If you feel like you don't know somebody who's struggling with this right now, you are not looking hard enough. Trust me, somebody in your family, somebody in your company, somebody that you see every single day is experiencing this. The only problem is whether or not you know about it or not. Whether or not you know about it or not. Ask David and Jackie. They're building the largest residential home in America. They are billionaires with a B. And their 18-year-old daughter dies in the room and, and nobody, the, the people who show up don't know anything about naloxone. It's been around for over 60 years. David even tells me, Dennis, don't carry it in the package. 
that one extra second that it takes for you to get it out of the package is an extra second that may save somebody's life. He has devoted his entire professional and personal life to advocacy for this, presented to Congress. Now you can get this without a prescription on the shelves of any pharmacy because of, of David and Jackie Siegel's advocacy. So take this, uh, be a part of it. Um, maybe I have time for just a couple of questions or, or comments from anyone, and then if you want more from me, if you want other venues for us to present this, we'd be happy to do that. Yes, sir. Yes, um, uh, it has happened, but is, it is incredibly rare. There's these stereotypes where people feel like it's just floating around in the air and we have to stay away from somebody who goes and not render the aid. It, it is largely uh, fear tactics. Now, there have been times where people have touched it, but usually it's touched it, they touch their face on accident or something like that. It's not just like floating around in the air. It's not something that would restrict somebody from providing aid. Another stereotype, uh, two stereotypes that come out is this. There has not been one report that I know of, not one in the country, where somebody has self-deployed naloxone on themselves and saved their own life. So people sometimes say, well, you're addicted, you're dependent. Let me give you this. You're going to keep this in case you overdose. If this is in my pocket, unless I have a string around my neck that says, in case I go unconscious and look funny, squirt this in my nose, it's more important for people who are not addicted, not dependent to have it. It's us saving others. In Seminole alone, to David and, and Jackie's vision, we've had a 25% increase in citizens deploying this in Seminole County, citizens deploying it. So again, that's so incredibly important. The other stereotype is, why would a drug dealer poison their customer? And the problem is, they don't. This person last night that we revived was smoking marijuana. The marijuana had been laced with fentanyl, not because they wanted to kill the person, because they wanted to create unprecedented addiction. And that's what happens. Next question. In 2005, I lost my mom to an overdose. I was 23 years old. She had been in a car accident just a couple of years prior here in Seminole County. And in 2005, we didn't know what Oxy was, the devil, really, that it is. And I just want to thank you for the work that you do to break the stigma, because oftentimes people will find out that my mother was 44 when she passed, leaving me at 23 and my baby sister, who I continue to raise afterwards, um, to, to raise her. And their face starts with sympathy. Oh, how tragic is that? And how, how did she die? And they expect cancer and an accident. And when I say it's an overdose, their face changes and goes, oh, well, you know that happens when you're a drug addict. So thank you for breaking the stigma because she did not ask for what happened to her. We didn't have Narcan then, and it's because of warriors like you that are gonna save lives and, and change them generationally. So thank you. I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss, and this is why it's so incredibly important for us to do what we can to change the narrative because I've been working to change it because people are getting poisoned. 
is what it is, right? It, it does not matter if the substance that you're taking is legal or illegal. If it's been tampered with a deadly substance, it's poisoning, right? And we want to we want to be the help uh, for families, right? Uh, I think that people that have the courage like you, that have stood up, people who have led the way like David and Jackie, that have shared their personal story, it connects with people. And others, uh, like we have moms groups that show up with, their, with faces and all of this stuff. Uh, if you have time, uh, uh, the local WFTV did a story in partnership with uh, Victoria's Voice, an hour-long episode on the eve of Thanksgiving from 8 to 9 o'clock that talked about it. And Dr. Scott Tucker here, who runs these programs on behalf of Jeff and Advent, did such a, such a remarkable job telling the story of his team and recovery, and it had somebody that's gone through this. I'm telling you, if that does not take you on an emotional roller coaster, the greatest responsibility that we have as a civilized society is to protect and preserve human life. Uh, the, the good news is there's a, um, uh, there's a lot of money to do a lot of work in the space of, of this. And I've worked closely with our Attorney General, Ashley Moody. Uh, I serve as her proxy on, on various boards and committees and, and chair things on her behalf. Our governor, uh, our first lady, Casey DeSantis, from day one, she would get on the phone with me, have 30, 45 minute long conversations about how do we, how do we get out there? How do we send the message? We have an incredibly compassionate society but we have a problem. Not political. We have a southern border where drugs are coming across like nobody's business. Everybody knows this. I mean, everybody sees this, right? Um, uh, I don't think the cartels will ever go back to organically grown and processed uh, opioids. You know, running poppy fields and having to harvest all of that is a lot of work. Why don't you just go into a lab and process it? And this is the crisis that we face. We can overcome this thing. If we can help you, uh, if Advent Health can help you, just reach out to us. Take this naloxone. Your training is take it out of the package, squirt it in the nose, bring somebody back to life, and get them to the hospital. That's your training on it. Take it. Make sure that you have it in your home. Make sure that you give it to loved ones. We have more up here. Uh, uh, Leah is here. She, she, I mean, she runs this, this, this great organization. And, and, I mean, this is a movement. And then, lastly, as I wrap up, People would say, well, you're the sheriff. Well, I wear three different hats in this community, largely. I wear, uh, first, uh, as sheriff, I'm the chief law enforcement officer of the county. The second hat I wear is similar to your space. Uh, yeah, I'm one of the largest employers in the county with a workforce of 1,500 people. So I'm a CEO of a company that has people in the ranks struggling with this, right? Or family members struggling with this, much like you. And, and, and then last, I'm an elected official. And too many elected officials get a pass on what are you doing to combat this? What do you know about this particular crisis in your community? It's important that we have these conversations because the elected officials will move and respond to whatever we as citizens ask of them. And I think that we have to ask, what is the strategy? More money than what we ever knew what to do with because of the settlement of Big Pharma. And in Seminole County, I'm telling you, you're community leaders and your elected officials are, are wonderful partners for us and great ambassadors. And this is why we, we are leading the narrative in the country when it comes to combating this. People at the White House mentioned the Seminole County model. 
Uh, I, I was with uh, uh, Secretary Mayorkas talking about the border in his office two weeks ago. During the conversation, he mentions Advent Health, the Hope and Healing Center. Uh, Merrick Garland, same thing. So what we're doing is incredibly important. Please use your voice. Please use your connections to get this narrative out there in front of as many people as you can. God bless you. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to be here and to share with you. And, and again, it's uh, you're too kind. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Seminole County Chamber, please visit SeminoleBusiness.org or check us out on our social media at Seminole County Chamber.